So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, we're really excited to be joined by Aviva Chomsky, who's a professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. She's the author of Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration, which was, uh, well, I guess it just came out in April of, of 2021, right? That's right. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Great. I contacted you because I, I read a piece that you wrote for, for Jacobin Magazine, which is entitled, I don't know if you came up with a title or, or they did, but it's entitled Joe Biden's Central America Plan is a Cruel Joke. And it caught my attention because everything that I'd been hearing about his plan in the mainstream media was what well, was kind of glowing, right? This is a real shift from the, the racist, xenophobic policies of the Trump administration. But your argument was in the piece that for people who've been paying attention to Central American policy for the past century, this, this plan is, is built on an old model. So maybe we could get into that at the start. What is that model? And what, what's the plan and what is the model? So, um, yeah, uh, I didn't think of that title, although um, <laughs> I agree with it. So I was happy with it. Um, uh, yeah, my, my title was something more boring than that. Um, you know, I think what we've seen in the months that we've had now of the Biden presidency is a real split between what um, he's proposing on the domestic front and what he's proposing in the foreign policy front. And I think that that's part of the contradiction that you're talking about. And his immigration plan really follows that split. So he's talking about some really significant and progressive and hopeful changes in the way the U.S. economy functions and the role of the state in the economy and the, um, the idea of the state as the guarantor of basic human needs. And, you know, that's something to celebrate. So mm -hmm. I, uh, to invisibilize that, because I think that's important too. But Biden's foreign policy is uh, nowhere near as progressive as his domestic policy. Um, in, in many areas, it's downright regressive, that is even worse than Trump's. And in the case of Central America, I say it's kind of more of the same. That is, U.S. policy towards Central America, at least since World War II, and really, if, if you want to kind of expand the way you define it, we can go back a couple of centuries, but, but at least since World War II, and I can talk about how it changed in the post-war period later if you want, um, it's been based on a particular vision of developmentalism, um, how economic development should occur. And it's a model of economic development for Central America and for the entire third world, really, based on and build in building an export economy. It's, an, it's a model that's based on inviting in foreign investment by granting the kinds of conditions that foreign investors want. And those conditions, unfortunately, are almost the opposite of the conditions that poor people in those countries need. So those conditions include things like low taxes on foreign investors. They include things like control of workers to prevent them from forming unions. They include things like no or very low minimum wages. They include things like 
uh, free access to land and resources. So the very economic model that the United States claims is going to bring prosperity, and that word is in President Biden's um, plan for Central America, is one that we already know. I mean, we don't even need those 70, 80 years of history to know it. Um, it's obvious, but if it, just in case it wasn't obvious, we do have 70 or 80 years of history to show us. Um, it's an economic model that impoverishes even more and in debts, the poor countries of the world and prevents them from developing autonomously in ways that can actually benefit their population because it's a model based on extracting resources, extracting labor for the benefit of foreign corporations and secondarily US consumers. Abby, can I interrupt for a sec? I'm an econ teacher, so I literally don't know another way that countries can develop, right? It's like, that's what we learn is, yeah, like you gotta have low taxes, a business-friendly environment, and that's been the history of development in the world, but you're arguing that that's not worked. Well, that actually has not been the history of development in the world. That's been the history of developmentalism in the world. That is the kind of economic development that the first world, the mm -hmm already industrialized countries have imposed on the third world their former colonies. So that's not at all the model of development that the currently industrialized countries followed when they were industrializing. The model that they followed was what I might call the colonial model. And they are still following that colonial model. Now, the colonial model is a global economic system that's based on uh, colonizers, who could also be called Europeans, who could also be called white people, extracting resources from their colonies in order to enrich themselves. So the European countries and the United States industrialized not by uh, inviting to extract their own resources, but rather by extracting the resources of their colonies and exploiting the labor of people of color through enslaving them, through dispossessing them from their land, through debt peonage, through forced labor systems. Um, that's the history of economic development over the last 500 years that created the unequal global economy that we have today. And the developmentalism since World War II has simply been a sort of a new veneer on basically the same old relationship, colonial or now neo-colonial relationship, extractive relationship between countries like the United States and the European countries and their Central American, African neo-colonies. You know, I was sort of joking before. I know, I know that story. Um, I figured I, you I did, <laughs> but I figured not all your listeners necessarily did. Right, but I, I think you know, it's funny as a, as a, well, the history and an econ teacher in high school, I feel sometimes like when I tell that story, I'm being conspiratorial because it, it, it is not actually what's in our econ books or in our, in our textbooks. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, your book is called Central America's Forgotten History. I'm wondering how it is that we have gotten this developmentalist story and how it holds up after, as you say, 70 years of, 
of truth, right? Like, so there's the truth and there's developmentalist story. And how is it that people are going to serious institutions and learning this? Again, I say, I'm saying myth, but I feel again, like the conspiracy theorists when I say myth, but like a story that's not accurate. So what, how, what's your sense of how it gets propagated and, and maintained? Well, um, it's partly propagated. Now, I hate to um, insult your discipline, but <laughs> so academics do all the time, right? Insult each other's discipline. Yes, do, please. Um, the discipline of economics is based more on fantasy than on reality. That is, it's based on creating models rather than studying what happens in the real world. Is that, am I, am I totally wrong about that? I, mean, I don't think, no, I don't think you're wrong at all. The, the problem is, you know, some of it is, is resources. Um, I don't know, and that's partly why I'm, I'm interested in, in doing the show with you today. Maybe you can help us. Um, I don't know where we go. Um, obviously, your book is a start, but where we go to learn, to learn the truth about the last 70 years. I mean, and let's focus on, on Central America. Maybe we can talk about some, some people we might read. But yeah, the models don't seem, the models don't seem right oftentimes to me, but I don't know, I don't know what else to give the kids. I feel like it's sort of my obligation. Like, yeah, like here's the story. And then I can like, I can, I can throw in sometimes um, some of the real story, but I, I know that's not the right way to do it. Well, I mean, I think there is, um, and you know, I'm not an expert in your discipline. So I'm probably not the person to ask about like which economists to read, but mm -hmm. no, there is a, um, a sort of a revisionist tradition in, within economics too. Um, the, what is it? URPE, Unit of Radical Political mm -hmm. Economists meets yeah. every year. Um, I know that um, the department at UMass Amherst is kind of like a hotbed of alternative economic study and theory. And um, But coming out of Latin America, too, there's a huge literature, and not just from Latin America itself, but from people who study Latin America. You know, there's books with titles like The Poverty of Progress, mm -hmm. Open Veins of, of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent, mm -hmm. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Um, so there, there's a huge liter alternative literature that, mm -hmm. that challenges this mainstream economic theory. And, and there is within the United States as well. But I mean, I guess I would say that it's a, that mainstream economic theory basically justifies the current global order. Mm -hmm. It justifies the wealth of the rich and it explains away the poverty of the poor. So it's a set of theories that's very convenient to those that control the global economy. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've always wondered was how this neo-colonial relationship actually works? Is it that the United States goes to the president of Mexico and says, hey, you better do this thing. You better implement these policies. Otherwise, we're going to invade you or otherwise you won't get aid or they use the World Bank and the IMF. Like, what, What's the mechanism? Well, there's a lot of different mechanisms um, and it depends on how disobedient a country is being. So one set of mechanisms comes from the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, these international institutions that lent large amounts of money to third world countries, indebting them in ways that they will never be able to pay back. 
but which basically holds these countries hostage to these international institutions that are basically controlled by the United States. So in the neoliberal era, since the 1980s, 1990s, economies of third world countries, indebted third world countries, which is pretty much all third world countries, they can hardly make any economic decisions for themselves because the IMF imposes a set of rules on them that involve basically prioritizing debt repayment over anything else. We can call them structural adjustment programs. We can call them austerity programs. Basically, uh, devoting government resources towards how can we best pay off the debt rather than how can we best serve the interests of our population. So social services have to be cut. Foreign investors have to be curried, um, flattered, and, and brought in. So, so that's one way. Another way is direct pressure from the United States. That is, the United States says, if you don't implement this economic policy, we're going to um, slap tariffs on your goods. Free trade agreements that are negotiated in completely undemocratic ways that certainly have benefits and kickbacks for certain sectors of society. And I should also point out that many third world countries, most third world countries, are governed by their own elites who share the economic interests of the powerful countries. That is, they want rich people to make more money because they are rich people. <laughs> so right. they- I, mean, I was thinking about that, right? Like, so you have to sell the Chicago School of Economics to somebody, but you have some, some willing buyers as well. Yes, absolutely. That is the, um, the, the ruling classes of third world countries share the same economic interests, like material interests, and the same sort of worldview as um, their more powerful benefactors or malefactors in the United States, in Europe, in the World Bank. So those policies don't necessarily hurt the rich of those countries. They hurt the poor of those countries. Free trade agreements. Now, that sounds very benign, like free, that sounds good, right? We all like But free trade agreements have nothing to do with freedom except for corporations. Free trade agreements are very, very long documents that are all about the obligations that third world countries have to corporations. So they basically grant rights to corporations over the interests of states and over the interests of people. So the U.S. free trade agreement with Mexico, for example, or the U.S. free trade agreements with Central America, to be more specifically related to my book, sets up a set of rules that are very favorable to foreign investors to encourage areas like maquiladora production, that is outsourcing of manufacturing, export-oriented manufacturing, where the labor-intensive parts of the manufacturing process are sent down to Central America, and then the products are brought back to the United States for sale. So it's very profitable for the companies that are doing this because they get to take advantage of the cheap labor in Central America and low taxes, no environmental regulation, Um, brutal repression of any kind of worker organizing or unionizing. And practically every single one of us listening to this show and you and I are wearing clothes that have labels that say made in Honduras, made in Nicaragua, 
made in Guatemala, made in El Salvador. There's a reason for that. It's the Central America Free Trade Agreement, or before that, the Caribbean Basin Initiative. Um, but it's the set of rules of the global economy that privilege corporations over people. Um, other things that these free trade agreements do um, is insist on uh, allowing duty-free entry of heavily, sometimes heavily subsidized US agricultural goods to the countries of Central America, which completely undermines small farmers there. And if you look at the results of this in Mexico, NAFTA was the North America Free Trade Agreement signed in 1994, led to a huge upsurge of migration from Mexico to the United States, mostly dispossessed small farmers, corn producers who were put out of business by the US corn that flooded Mexican markets. And now Mexico, because of the free trade agreement, could no longer protect its own markets, protect its own citizens. The CAFTA, I was talking about the, the low-wage model imposed by CAFTA. So the maquiladora sector is one. Um, a second industry really promoted by CAFTA and that has flourished is extractive industries, mining and energy resources, mega projects, huge mines, um, dams, infrastructure projects that, again, they're extremely harmful to local populations. They dispossess they're toxic, they deforest, they um, destroy land, farming, water, homes, communities, but the governments can't control them because their rights are guaranteed by the free trade agreement and they make lots of profits for foreign companies that are investing in them. And they sell lots of stuff to us. Plantation agriculture, it's another aspect of this. And one of the um, big uh, crops that's being pushed in Central America, um, African palm that's used to produce palm oil that you and I consume every day if we buy any kind of processed food that comes in a package, palm oil is gonna be there among its ingredients. And we also use it every day when we fill up our cars with gasoline because that's what ethanol is made of. And everything you hear about biofuels and clean gasoline and uh, renewable energy, um, that all has a cost. And the cost frequently comes from the third world, places like Central America. So that's a sec free trade agreements. It's a second way or a third way, because I already have described two, that we impose these economic models. And a third way, a fourth, fifth way, how many numbers am I at right now? is through direct military invasion. That is when a Central American, Latin American, Caribbean government has simply said, no, we're going to pursue our own economic path. We're gonna put the interests of our population first. The United States invades and overthrows it. And we have done this again and again. The first time in, in the post-war period, at least, um, in Guatemala in 1954, in Cuba, 1961, in the Dominican, in, in Brazil, in the Dominican Republic in 1965, uh, in Chile in 1973, in Nicaragua in the 1980s. That is, we do not mind using military force to enforce our economic model on Latin American countries. And we've done it again and again in Central America. You know, going back to the free trade model that you were describing, I could almost convince myself that 
it's an okay model to allow corporations to go and seek, you know, resources and lower wages. If you also gave all the people of Central America the right to come and seek out high wage labor in the North, like if the borders truly were open, then, you know, you could say, all right, at least there's consistency here. But what's so wild about the model that you're describing is that it really is just freedom to cross borders if you're a company, but not if you're a human being. Well, I mean, I agree with you that the borders should also be open for human beings, but I don't think that is the free trade model that we're talking about does not just mean open borders. It means that governments are not allowed to protect their own populations. And that's mm-hmm. Wrong with them. It's not the question of, well, should capital be allowed to invest? That I could go along with. But should governments be allowed to tax or protect their environments, protect their workers' rights to form unions? That's the problem with the free trade agreements, is that they do not allow governments to protect their own people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One side of the of the Biden plan is this is building up maintaining, I should say, the this economic model. The other side, and they're linked, obviously, the other side is the militarization, not just of our border. And, and that border, as I understand it from your work and other people's work, was already heavily militarized by the time we, we got to, you know, George W. Bush and, of course, all the way through the Obama administration and Trump. But also part of the goal, it seems like, is to move our southern border even more south so that it's actually the southern Mexican border, which has become de facto our border, and it's become heavily militarized. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yes, and not only the southern Mexico border, but um, President Biden is really pushing hard to militarize Guatemala's southern border to force Guatemala to set up internal checkpoints to prevent migrants from traveling through Guatemala and to coerce Honduras into militarizing its southern border. So this is really uh, a big project. And again, this is where, I mean, immigration policy kind of straddles foreign and domestic. So Biden is saying a lot of really nice things about granting citizenship to immigrants who are here without documents, um, extending DACA, extending TPS, opening up paths to citizenship. Um, You know, all of those things sound really great. But at the same time, immigration policy is also foreign policy. And that's where the ugliest part of Biden's immigration policy is coming forward. So, uh, you know, conditioning donation of vaccines to Mexico on Mexico's, and this is again, how exactly does the United States government coerce Latin American governments to do its bidding in these economic, in these, um, and now we're not talking about economic, but um, in terms of immigration policy, um, conditioning it on Mexico becoming a collaborator in enforcing US immigration law, not allowing people to get to the border and collaborating in the U.S. goal of making people stay in Mexico, forcing people to stay in Mexico, uh, both Mexicans and Central Americans. And the majority- By the way, is this also, are we talking also about asylum seekers? Yeah, well, 
Okay, so asylum seekers means that you have arrived at the U.S. border and filed a claim, a U.S. immigration agent. So there are many asylum seekers now because of the ways that the United States is implementing its immigration policy in other countries. Um, there are many asylum seekers who never even make it into Mexico. There are asylum seekers who never even make it into Guatemala. That is asylum seekers from Honduras wow. who don't get anywhere near the US border to actually file their claim for asylum, their request for asylum. So Kamala Harris, when she met with the president of Guatemala last week, offered this nice aid package, but once again, it was conditioned on Guatemala creating a new military force that will be accompanied and trained by US border patrol officials on Guatemala's southern border. So it's a new joint task force where the US uh, Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol are working together with Guatemala's military to police Guatemala's southern border. Wow. <laughs> I guess, I guess it's, um, I keep coming back. I mean, there's two questions I come back to a, a bunch and I'm thinking about now. The first is when we talk about the, the collaborative work that the elites in, in say Central America are doing with their counterparts here, this really does seem like a project which well, helps this, this global elite, but it, it obviously hurts people in Central America. And I, and I think it probably hurts people in, in America too, low-income people in America as well. And again, maybe I, I missed it and I, I'm, I possibly did, but I don't see a lot of conversation, even thinking about Bernie Sanders or AOC, but on the left, I don't hear a lot of conversation about our Central American policy or these free trade agreements. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, if you do and whether or not it's it, that conversation is happening, but the, the foreign policy stuff seems so connected to the well-being of low-income people here, and of course, to low-income people in, in Central America. So I think during the 1980s, when the, um, you know, the revolution had triumphed in Nicaragua in 1979, and there were strong revolutionary movements in um, El Salvador and Guatemala, um, and there were vicious wars being carried out by the United States, revolutions and revolutionary movements. Um, I think the American public in general was more aware of Central America, partly because the U.S. government, I mean, even though, you know, the war against Nicaragua, much of it was, was covert and covertly funded um, by a Reagan administration that could not get Congress to come fully on board with his mm -hmm. But we certainly heard a lot about the threat of Central America, the threat of these revolutions, the threat of Nicaragua. And I think it was hard for a lot of people to buy that mm -hmm. you know, extremely small, extremely poor countries were such a threat to the United States. But at the same time, um, there was a very strong Central America solidarity movement in the United States. And there were Central Americans constantly coming to talk about what was happening in their countries. There were refugees coming into the United States. And there was just a much stronger, and, and some of the atrocities, like the, the assassination of Archbishop Romero in El Salvador, for example, 
the news couldn't ignore some of the massacres, some of the assassinations, some of the the the, the horrific crimes that the U.S. sponsored regimes in Central America were carrying out. Um, but I think also the especially the Nicaraguan Revolution, but also the um, the revolutionary projects of um, the FMLN in El Salvador and the popular movements and uh, URNG in Guatemala really inspired a lot of hope among pretty significant sectors of the U.S. population that really a a different kind of society and economy could be created there. Um, And I think that is really hard for people to see today, although there are really strong popular movements struggling against this economic model in Central America still, but they don't make it into the news as much. I think you have to follow news sources that are particularly concerned with Central America. A lot of the solidarity organizations are still there. Um, CISPAS, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, is always publishing uh, critiques of what's happening in El Salvador and the U.S. role in El Salvador. I think the information is out there, but you have to work a little harder to to get it. Mm -hmm. I think that... um, there's a kind of a cynicism in the general population about U.S. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. You know, how many people support the war in Afghanistan, but how many people care enough to learn anything about what's going on there or do anything about it? Um, you know, when I talk to my students about, about Vietnam and the anti-war movement and um then I point out that, you know, we're involved in some wars right now. Do you even know that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of them know in a kind of a vague way, but, right. uh, you know. Um, well, I wonder, Avi, do you think it's, yeah, because I feel that same way with the high school students. And some of it is like, okay, well, they're 15 and 16 years old. Maybe 15 and 16 year olds have never known what's going on. But it, it does feel like it's possible to live in India, in the middle of the empire, the heart of the empire, and really not be aware of the things that the empire is doing in your name and and with your money. It sounds like this is a different situation than it was in the 80s. I imagine in the 70s in Vietnam, you had lots of young people going off to war and dying. Do you think some of it is that young people today, especially if they're not poor, are really insulated from the actual fighting? Um, yes, I'm sure that plays a role, definitely. Um, but I mean, I fault our media too. You know, it should not be so hard to find out about U.S. foreign policy and its impacts, but our media rarely pay attention to that or tell us. A friend of mine studies um, European immigration policy. One of the things she she's told me is that even before Trump, that in some ways Trump got his, many of his ideas from the Europeans, the Europeans were outsourcing the border work, that basically they were paying countries in Africa to basically in turn to hold migrants, and um, they were giving them aid, and they were giving them equipment and training. Um, I'm wondering to what extent you think that this is the new, not just American, but global model for immigration policy. Um, and I should say that it also, it did not start with Trump either. Um, right. It's going on well before Trump. 
I mean, I can't really tell you who started it first, if it was mm-hmm. Europe or the United States, but I mean, I think it's a, a common trend in Europe and the United States um, in the 21st century. I think part of it has to do with the immigrant rights movements, those trying to defend the rights of immigrants and figuring, well, if we can get it out of people's sight, it's going to be easier for them to forget about it and harder for them to fight it. Because there's been a lot of protest around um, atrocities happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. But if we can get Guatemala to do it for us, then it's going to be harder for people to see. You mentioned Eduardo Galeano's Open Veins of Latin America. It's a book that was really important for me and I read it when I was um, when I was in college, and you know that the story of U.S. as empire, U.S. as the U.S. as a country which intervenes all the time in in Latin America, you know that story is a centuries old story. And then you mentioned earlier today that that the kind of the foreign policy that we're talking about vis-a-vis Central America, you know, there's some continuity from the post-war period. And I'm just wondering, you know, sometimes when I'm thinking, when I'm teaching global history, I'm thinking maybe there's continuity since the late 15th century. I mean, to what extent is the second world, does the second world war mark a a sort of new foreign policy agenda? Um, Well, in the book, um, I mean, I think you could answer that question either way and be accurate. And I mean, the real answer is, you know, history is complicated. There's more than one thing Mm -hmm. going on once. Um, But, you know, I really see a strong continuity from, say, 1608 to the present in terms Mm -hmm. of settler colonialism and the United States. That is, I think the American Revolution was more of a blip than a revolution, because the very same colonizers who came in 1608, who started an expansionist project in the 1600s, those same colonizers were the ones who demanded independence in 1775. And they demanded independence in large part to continue their expansionist, racist, and extractivist project. So what happened, the U.S. expansion after 1776 was an absolute continuity of British expansion before 1776. And U.S. expansion into Central America was also part of this same, in the 19th, which started in the 19th century, was also part of this same project of white supremacy, military expansion, displacement, dispossession, and forced labor of people of color in order to promote capitalist accumulation. And, you know, in in that respect, I think there's a lot of continuity. Now, there's also particularities to the developmentalist project of the post-World War II period in the way it was articulated, in the international institutions involved in it, in the Cold War context of how it went along with democracy promotion. So there's definitely historical specificities to the post-World War II period. But in terms of settler colonial ideology and extractivist economies, there's also a lot of continuity. 